Coming up, we're back after a short holiday break. When will 5G mobile service come to your town? Why is your old iPhone so slow anyway? And is the web browser still relevant when the internet is everywhere? It's Wednesday, the second best day of the week. This is Steve DeShankle, and you're listening to the New England Tech Podcast. Tech Podcast is brought to you by Hammerhead Content Management Solutions for media organizations and content creators. You love to write, so why do you hate to publish? Visit us at hammerheadcms.com. That's H-A-M-M-E-R-H-E-D-C-M-S.com. Music in this show is by Kurt Baker, Lame Drivers, Monkey Mind, The Pharaohs, and The Barracudas. Saw some interesting news this week that we will not be covering in the news segment in this show because it's not really tech news at all. It is non-tech news, as a matter of fact, or more accurately, dated tech news, obsolete tech news. The Alamo Drafthouse Cinema, which is a national chain of art house cinemas, kind of edgy art house cinemas originating in Austin, Texas. I've actually been to the original one in Austin. It was a lot of fun. They are opening up a new store that sells VHS tapes. Yes, VHS tapes, the classic tapes that you will put in a VCR. And they're going to be rare tapes, tapes that you can't find anywhere else, tapes that you may not even be able to find on eBay or anywhere like that. You have to go to the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema VHS store and buy these tapes there to pop in your VCR. And by the way, VCRs are not even manufactured anymore. I don't even know where you would buy a VCR. I'm sure you can go on eBay and buy an old one, but you cannot go to a Best Buy or a store like that and buy a VCR. You can't go on Amazon and buy a VCR. They don't exist. They simply don't exist. So I thought this was fascinating that this acclaimed cinema organization thinks that people are going to want to buy VHS tapes, but this is not something new. It's part of a larger trend. Now, the Alamo Draft House is kind of hipster cinema, right? A lot of what they do is kind of hipster gimmicks and, and fun little vintagey things, a lot of nostalgia. And this is part of it, but vintage technology has been around for a while now. It's almost vintage. Vintage technology is almost vintage itself. I'm reminded of the boom in record players. When I was a kid, we were taught that record players were completely obsolete. Back in the 80s, people still had them, but everyone knew they were on their way out. Everyone knew that they would be supplanted by CDs. And then CDs were supplanted by MP3s, and now you can listen to Spotify. You can stream all the music you want all the time. But nonetheless, people are getting record players again. Lots, I know so many people who have a record player. I've got a confession for you. I have a record player. And people just like the idea of this old technology, but not only because it's made, it makes them nostalgic. The interesting thing is people like it because they think to an extent it's better. A lot of record aficionados believe that listening to a music, listening to music on a record player actually sounds better than streaming it through Spotify. Now, I am not an audiophile myself, despite the fact that I'm doing this audio show, and I know it sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds terrific, I know, because I've got an ear for it. Nonetheless, 
I am not really an audiophile. I don't think that the quality of an audio recording is something that really grabs me. And to be perfectly honest with you, even though I've got this record player, I can't hear the difference. I honestly can't. If you play a record for me and then you play an MP3 for me and you play something on Spotify for me, I can't tell which is which. They all sound the same. I don't think the records are of higher quality, but there are people out there, a lot of people, who insist they are of higher quality. They are absolutely sure of it, and they will fight and probably die to convince you of that. They're very, very serious about it. Vintage technology. I don't know if anyone really thinks that VHS tapes are better. That would certainly be a tough claim to make. But there probably are people that will tell you that even though the video quality isn't technically better in a VHS tape, there is something that's more homey, more charming about it, that crackle you get, that authenticity. Something that is superior about VHS tapes is the ability for them to always remember where you are. Right now, if you buy a movie on Amazon or Google Play or something like that and stream it on a, uh, on a media player, such as a Fire TV stick or a Roku, then it'll remember where you are, but sometimes it doesn't always, right? Like let's say if you return to it a year later, they'll probably forget your place. And you know maybe that's not a great use case, but nonetheless, it's true. Whereas a VHS tape, this analog tape will always remember exactly where you are. And that's actually something really good. Rewinding and fast forwarding, you know, it hasn't really been perfected in streaming media yet. It's always a little bit awkward, not with a VHS tape, there are reels in there. There, are, There's film in there. And when you rewind, you can actually see it rewind. You can literally see where it's going. When you fast forward, you can see that too. It's perfect. The rewinding and fast forwarding is perfect. Even if when it pauses, it flickers a little in a funny way. Nonetheless, it's a little easier to rewind and fast forward because something physical is happening. Nothing's being retrieved from the internet. So I will admit that there are a few things that are desirable about VHS tapes, and maybe there are things that are desirable about records, too, if you're an audiophile and you can really hear the difference, which I can't. But I really think that, all in all, it's probably just a case of nostalgia run wild, of people thinking that things all must be better because they're old. I like advancements. That's why I do this podcast. I like new technology. I get nostalgic about old technology too, but I'm also willing to admit that the old technology is not quite as good as the new technology. But nonetheless, vintage technology is a trend. It will continue to be a trend. I don't know what's coming next. What will possibly come next? Let's think about it. Maybe a VIC-20 laptop computer is better than the laptop computers we have now. Maybe punch cards are superior. Where's the Where are the punch cards? Where's the punch card revival of people just feeding punch cards into giant mainframe computers and, and coming back with uh, with the results, right, with the output. Where's that? Why isn't that coming back? Well, it may only be a matter of time before it does come back. Vintage technology, I find this really interesting. It can be fun. I don't know if it's any more than fun, but fun is not an insignificant thing. It is just about that time, everyone's favorite time, of the New England Tech Podcast. Is it your favorite time? It's not necessarily my favorite time, but then again, all these segments are like my children, right? This is my show. I invented all of them. They're all so dear to me. So 
I can't say this is my favorite time, but if it is yours, get excited. Be, be excited because it is time to see what's in the news. First up this week, the White House has declared 5G service a national priority. A couple weeks ago, the White House released its National Security Strategy Report, which they are legally required to release. And in that report, they said that developing 5G internet capability was a critical infrastructure improvement that the United States is going to have to make. Now, what is 5G? Well, let's go back many, many years to explain, because I remember at the beginning of my career in the digital space, I attended a conference where we heard a speech about 3G, this new technology, being the promise of a new era. It was going to change everything. That's what they told us about 3G mobile technology, which was a technology for faster internet connections on mobile devices. And you know what? They weren't wrong. 3G did change a lot, and 3G was actually the beginning of the modern smartphone era. Though when modern smartphones did show up, they were really pushing 4G to a certain extent. 4G was definitely a thing by that point. Those smartphones would never have existed if 3G hadn't happened. The iPhone would never have existed if not for 3G because it would have been useless otherwise. If anyone's ever been on a 2G connection out there, you know that they churn and they churn. They often don't connect at all. It's very, very clunky. It's very, very hard to use. So 3G was critical just as these people at this conference I attended all those years ago predicted that it would be. 4G though, I would argue, was the one that was really, really transformative because that was what made mobile internet just as good and just as fast as desktop internet. And 4G promised to be even more than that too. It promised to sort of be our new home internet access as well, that you wouldn't necessarily have to have a wired internet connection, you know, connected maybe by Wi-Fi through a router, through a cable modem. You would just have a, a modem that took the cellular 4G connection and enabled it to use it on, on all your home devices. And while that's possible, and while there are companies that do that, it hasn't really gained wide adoption. But 5G could be the one, I, I would suggest, probably will be the one that actually takes over the entire internet. 5G, you see, promises speeds much, much higher than anything we've seen before. In fact, the top speed of 5G technology is 70 gigabits per second, 70 gigabits per second. Now, does that mean anything to you? I'm sure to some people out there it means a lot, to others it doesn't mean anything. Well, let me just tell you this. One gigabit per second is considered to be amazing right now. If you are a media junkie, if you stream tons and tons of stuff, if you're a big gamer, if you need a really, really fast connection, if you need lots of different connections at one point, and someone is offering you one GPP, GBPS, gigabit per second, one GBPS internet service, you're gonna be like, oh my God, I need it. I need this one gigabit per second internet service. 5G, 70. So that is 70 times as fast, 70 times. And 
that's it, right? That's really the end. That's the end of it. You'll never need anything more than that, at least within the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We can't anticipate what's coming, but certainly that is going to cover a lot. So you can see why this is a national security matter and why the White House is interested. We could be transferring huge amounts of data from place to place in very little time. Could be a matter of national security using 5G. And 5G is not just speed either. 5G is a set of technologies. It's not a single technology. It's an umbrella term for different technologies. Now, 5G technologies will allow for more simultaneous connections, and that becomes critical as more and more devices are connected to the internet. So we covered this a little bit already, but big question is, will this make terrestrial internet service providers obsolete? Will you have to pay your cable company anymore in order to give you an internet connection? I would suggest Maybe not, right? Why would you if you can get essentially the same service on your phone and it's just as good? It's just as good when you use it on your home computer. The question though becomes, will this be affordable? And that I think is what killed 4G service in the home to a certain degree. There may be no need of a wired internet connection if we can achieve affordable 5G with affordable being the operative word there. And creating that is going to mean a lot of infrastructure. Now, if it's corporations that are responsible for creating all that infrastructure, they're going to pass the cost on to you, the consumer. That is what they do. That's how capitalism works. And it's going to be prohibitively expensive, potentially. However, the government really has the ability to pitch in here and make the U.S. a worldwide leader in 5G technology because it's going to require a lot of infrastructure. Development on that infrastructure is already underway uh, and it's been in progress for years, but it's been slow to arrive. How can the government ease that along? How can the government help? The thing is, these developments happen a lot more easy if the federal government can help. And I find that very ironic. I find it very ironic that the federal government, the White House specifically, has acknowledged this considering this is the same White House that just pushed for the reversal of net neutrality on the grounds that the government managing things is bad. That's the philosophy, that we don't need net neutrality because the government messes everything up. Ronald Reagan talked a lot about that in his day, about, you know, government so small you can drown it in a bathtub. I think that was Reagan who said that. Email me if it wasn't. But that's the overarching philosophy of conservatism and, and what we have today, that all regulations are by nature bad. But now here's the White House saying, well, not necessarily. We can help out doing 5G. So a little bit of hypocrisy there, but at least they are doing the right thing in terms of 5G. Now, when is 5G happening? Verizon has announced that it will roll out the first 5G networks in five American cities in 2018, I can't name those cities. They haven't been announced. Only Sacramento has been announced so far, but four other lucky cities will get this first 5G service, and we'll see if it really is prohibitively expensive at that time. Now, whatever pace these things go at, whatever cities come first, whatever rate we do this at, one thing is for sure, 5G is coming eventually. There is no doubt at all about that. The question is just, is the United States going to be a leader? Or will we lag behind, as we sometimes have done, due to inadequate government support? That question is going to be answered very soon. 
Next up, have you been paranoid that your old iPhone was running slower? Turns out, you are probably right. For years now, a lot of people who have older iPhones have suspected that those iPhones have started running more slowly. To a lot of people's surprise, this week, Apple confirmed that those people weren't being paranoid at all. Apple is, in fact, deliberately slowing down or throttling iPhones. Now, people who have noticed this have suspected that Apple was doing this deliberately in an attempt to force them to buy newer iPhones, right? They've had all the, the they've had this same iPhone all these years. Why would they have a new one? What's the motivation? Well, if it gets slower, they say, well, we need the newest technology. We need the newer iPhone. Apple makes even more money than they're already making, and they win. However, Apple disputes this. They say this is not why they're doing it. They say it is entirely about battery life. Lithium-ion batteries, which power so many of our devices, including pretty much all smartphones, can handle less as they age. As they age, they get weaker and weaker and can do less and less. So Apple says they are deliberately giving those batteries less to do. Phones, they say, were shutting off when the processor was overloaded. So by slowing things down, they are not giving the processor as much to do, and therefore the battery can do its job and last. Now, as longtime listeners of the New England Tech Podcast may know, I respect Apple greatly. I think they are certainly one of the most innovative technology companies in the past half century. You got to give Apple credit where credit is due, but I am also a bit of an Apple skeptic. I don't use many Apple products myself. I think that they are there are better, more economical alternatives available. It's a little bit of a controversial thing to say, but it has been my long-standing belief for a long, long time. So, I will tell you, is Apple telling the truth about this? Probably. They probably are telling the truth when they say it's about the batteries. Is Apple telling the whole truth about this? Uh, maybe. I'm not so convinced about that. I believe the story about the batteries. I absolutely believe it. But the iPhone has always been promoted as a device that lasts an extra, extra, extra long time, like the chewing gum. Power users have to get a new iPhone every time one comes out. Of course they do. They're power users. That's what they do. They must have the latest and greatest technology. It is unacceptable for them not to. But what about other users? Now, when I complain about the iPhone being a bad value, and I really do believe that it's not the greatest value out there, the response I always get from Apple fans, almost every single time I get the same response, it's, yeah, the, the iPhone is expensive, but how often do you need a new phone? That's what they always say to me. How often do you need a new phone? I don't need a new phone ever, right? I have the same iPhone and it lasts for 40, 50 years. Who knows? 100 years. I can be buried with the same iPhone that I have now. That's the, the story I always hear from them. And this is Apple saying that these defenders, their own defenders who are talking to me about the value of an iPhone, they're wrong. Apple's saying you're wrong. Apple is saying... An iPhone isn't necessarily valuable for a long period of time. It's valuable for a limited time, and then it's going to be slower, and you're going to have to get a new one. And maybe that's accurate, but it also degrades the value proposition, in my opinion. Now, I don't want to engage in baseless speculation here. 
far be it from me, an important technology journalist, to do such a thing, but I don't exactly doubt that encouraging people to buy new iPhones was a nice fringe benefit of the battery situation, right? That's what I mean when I say maybe they're telling the whole truth because, yeah, maybe maybe it's all about the battery, but I'm sure nobody over there at Apple in Cupertino was complaining that people would be forced to buy new iPhones as a result of this. Apple moves a lot of product and they want to move more and more product. That's why they are Apple. Let us also not forget here that Apple has never at any point, at any point while selling the iPhone for the past 10 plus years, they have never allowed users to replace the battery. Other cell phone manufacturers have, though increasingly, especially for the higher end phones, interestingly enough, they're following in Apple's footsteps and not having the battery be replaceable. But Apple has been adamant that they will never have the battery be replaceable. And that's been an Apple philosophy for a long, long time, as a matter of fact. Very few Apple products that have ever been released have a replaceable battery. There must be some, but I am not really aware of them. I can't name any off the top of my head. Apple doesn't like you to be able to replace the battery. They like to have a battery that dies, and then you have to get an entirely new device, which has always squicked me out a little bit. And this is all because of trust, right? Apple is asking you for a lot of trust when you become their customer. That's something that's always bothered me about it. That's something that makes me uncomfortable, but it makes other people very comfortable. Apple is saying, we are the gold standard. We want you to put yourself in our hands. We want you to trust us. And a lot of people do trust them. That's comforting for them. But at the same time, you are putting a lot of trust in them, right? That's that's the other side of the coin. One side is that you get a company that's going to do things for you and you trust them. The other side of the coin is you have to trust them. And they are a profit-making enterprise, right? So a lot of people like that, but I am skeptical, even though I will admit for the most part, Apple does take care of its customers. It's They're lauded for their customer service. They take good care of customers. They produce high-quality devices. But at the same time, at the same time, you're going to have to trust them. So are you going to trust them in this situation? Is this battery situation an example of Apple taking care of their customers and making sure that their devices perform as well as they can for the longest period of time? Or is it an example of Apple abusing that trust? Well, the answer to that question depends entirely on who you ask. A couple of weeks ago, Amazon released a brand new web browser for the Fire TV. It is called Silk. Silk is not a new name for Amazon browsers. You will also see the Silk browser on Kindle tablet devices, but now the new Fire TV Silk browser is out. The Fire TV, of course, being the streaming media device, which I personally am a big fan of and use on a near daily basis. Then, just last week, Amazon announced 
that Firefox was now available for the Fire TV as well. In fact, even when they had their own browser, the Silk browser available, they started promoting Firefox on the same level as their own browser. If you load up the home screen of your Fire TV device, you may very well see a big promo up top that says Silk and Firefox now available for the Amazon Fire TV on the same level. They don't care which one of them you download as long as you download one of them. They are interested in you doing that. They think you'll want to do that. Now, the question is, why has this happened? Why do we now have these full web browsers available for this streaming media device? Well, the Silk browser has been a in the works for quite a while now. It was announced a while ago. But why are they promoting it so much? And why are they promoting it alongside Firefox? Well, that is where it gets a little more interesting. You see, recently, and we reported on this here on the podcast, Google announced that they are pulling their YouTube apps from Fire TV devices. This is the result of a pissing match between Google and Amazon. Just one of those pissing matches that happen in the technology world. Google, uh, the lords of YouTube, say, well, if Amazon's not going to be nice to us, then Amazon's customers don't get to use YouTube. Well, the browser is Amazon saying, you can use YouTube, just use the browser. It's the same thing. And by the way, it basically is the same thing. The YouTube apps for Fire TV uh, and actually the Roku as well, which I also have, have never really been any more than uh, sort of a... a, a uh, wrapped version of the app interface. Uh, not the app interface, I'm sorry, the browser interface. So by using the browser, you're basically getting the same thing as you were getting in the app. And I've tried it, it's true. It's, it's essentially the same experience. So that's why we are now being directed at the browser. So I took a look at both these browsers in the past week, and they really are reminiscent of the old web TV. Does anybody remember web TV out there? I guess it all depends on how old you are. I used to love turning on cable TV late at night and watching infomercials for web TV at the dawn of the internet. It was basically the web on your TV. That's why it was called web TV, right? They didn't just get that that uh, wonderful name out of nowhere. It, it meant something. It meant the web on your TV and there was a keyboard and you could just navigate through websites on your TV. And the idea at the time was that you know, nobody would use computers. Those were for nerds. Uh, the web was great, though, so why wouldn't you want to use the web on your TV? Now, the web was one of the first killer apps for the Internet. It wasn't the first killer app. Email is sometimes described as the first Internet killer app. But the web was such a killer app that it became synonymous with the Internet to a lot of people. There are a lot of people even today that don't know there's a difference between the web and the Internet, right? They don't understand the Internet is a set of technologies one of which is the World Wide Web, but they're not the same thing. They are synonymous in the minds of a lot of people. However, today, the internet is so much more than the web. And as I used this past week, the Silk browser on the Fire TV and Firefox on the Fire TV, I couldn't help but think, is this necessary anymore? How relevant is the web browser today in a world of apps, in a world of APIs, and so much more than that when the internet and the web have never been less synonymous 
in reality, where the internet does everything for us. It controls our thermostats. It controls our security systems. It does everything. It is everywhere. It streams our TV shows. How can we say the web browser is continuing to be important in a world where people use it less and less in favor of other applications of the internet? See, the thing about the web browser is that you can do pretty much anything with it. And it's interesting that Amazon is promoting it as essentially a hack to access YouTube. That means they don't think it does have much utility, but you can do anything with a web browser, and that's why I love it. That's why I continue to love it and always have. You can run more or less any application, anything you can do in an app. Not everything, not literally everything, but a great deal of what you can do in a standalone app or anywhere else, you can also do with a web browser. Now, while there are exceptions to this, modern browsers are powerful and they're getting more and more powerful all the time. But here's the problem. A web application that you use, a web app, doesn't always run as well as it would if you develop it natively. And while there are, I was about to say, nobody knows more about this than I do. There are plenty of people who know more about this than I do, but I happen to know a lot about this because I've tried to develop web applications myself in my own career and found that they are naturally very clunky compared to what you can do with, say, a native iPhone app or a native Android app. So the irony is that even as browsers get more and more advanced, browser adoption goes down and down because there are other and better ways to use the internet for these specific applications. You know, I remember when everyone was pushing apps all the time. App, 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 it was all an app. The web was considered to an extent dead, right, even, because nobody wanted to develop anything for the web. People wanted to develop apps and apps only. I'm talking about five to 10 years ago, right? Even Reddit, I, we, we've talked about Reddit on the podcast before, Reddit, continues to push apps. When I use Reddit, I'm a frequent user of Reddit. When I use it on my phone in a, on a mobile browser, it's a very unpleasant experience. And the reason it's unpleasant is, is deliberate. Reddit doesn't want it to be a good experience. They want you to download the app. But here's the truth. It takes effort to install an app. It doesn't take much effort. You don't have to be a genius to install an app on your phone. But it nonetheless takes effort. Effort is still Effort. Now, this is true. The majority of smartphone users, maybe you, maybe you listening out there, have a very small number of apps that they use on a regular basis. Maybe you have two or three or four apps you use every time uh, that you use your phone, or most of the time you use your phone, and that's pretty much it. That's pretty much all you use. There are billions of websites out there, right? So how is anybody can compete? How is anybody can how is anybody going to compete if all you're doing is using Facebook all the time, if all you're doing is using Gmail or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever you're using, everyone's got their thing. How are you going to use these other services? How, how are you going to use other websites when the need to use them comes up? You're still going to need a web browser. The web browser is going to continue to be very important. But as fewer and fewer people use desktop and laptop computers, the browser seems clunkier, right? This clunky Reddit browser experience I was talking about, for example. Now, Reddit has made it deliberately clunky, but still, it's not ideal. 
Browsers can be particularly clunky on a platform such as the Fire TV, and that's what I learned this past week. It's not a great experience. It doesn't make me want to sit there on my sofa and use it with my remote control. And they're even, of course, a little clunky on a smartphone. I don't find using a web browser on my smartphone anywhere near as good an experience as using it on my laptop, and I will run to my laptop to use it if that's even remotely possible, just so I don't have to use a web browser on my smartphone. So why aren't browsers a better experience on these devices? Are they not usable enough? Is this really a usability issue? Now, Android has taken steps to create apps that can be loaded nearly instantaneously with dedicated icons on your smartphone home screen. They're called Android Instant Apps, and they haven't really gained hugely wide adoption, but it's an interesting concept, and it makes me think that maybe promoting browser-based apps in a similar way would be a good solution. What if there's a more streamlined web browser that you can integrate a little more into your phone? You know, you, you can install an icon like in installing an app, but using the web browser might, from a user experience perspective, be just as easy as using an app because it's a little more integrated into the operating system and, and all these different usability issues are addressed right? That's possibly an answer. Maybe engineering is an answer too, right? And I was kind of getting at that as well. Now, desktop browsers have improved tremendously over the time they've been available. I used my first desktop browser in, I think, 1993 or so, and they are so, so much better than they were back then. They continue to get better all the time. And it makes me wonder if developers are still thinking about a desktop model when they develop smartphone browsers, when the smartphone is an entirely different world altogether. Now, could we have a browser, a web browser that works as well with the memory management being just as good as, say, the Facebook app or Gmail, right? And I wonder whether this just hasn't gotten as much attention as it could have because it's not sexy enough, because that's not what people want to buy. That's not what Silicon Valley wants to hear. It's not what venture capitalists and investors want to hear. They don't want to hear that you're working on a better browser. They want to hear you're working on a more exciting app that's going to be transformative and change anything. So I do wonder if the engineering has not gotten as much attention as it could have. So maybe it's a user experience issue. Maybe it is an engineering issue. I don't really know. That's for the wizards over there in Silicon Valley and elsewhere to figure out. But what I am confident of is that the browser will never die. I'm totally confident of that, even as skeptics are always declaring this or that to be the last big web app. You hear that all the time. I remember when Pinterest first came out, there were a lot of stories about, oh, here is the last big web app. There will never be a major service created for the web again. It's all going to be mobile now. But people continue to create websites. People continue to do it. The browser will continue to live. It will definitely continue to live. I'm 100% sure. But if it wants to thrive as opposed to just live, it is going to have to evolve. Everybody out there had a really great holiday season. Christmas is behind us. New Year's is coming right up, right? Didn't that happen quickly? I bet nobody out there thought that this would happen so 
so soon, but the holiday season does kind of creep up on us like that, and it does end like that. So I hope everyone had a really great time, full of lots of cheer. As I said in the last podcast, I hope it was holly. I hope it was jolly. I hope it was all those things. And the next time we will be with you here on the podcast will be in the year 2018. Every year sounds more and more like the future to me. 2017, 2016, 2015, all the way back to 2000. It just sounds like the future. And 2018 is really starting to sound like the distant future, isn't it? Now, 2017 was a very significant year for technology, not always in a good way, but it will go down in the history books as a significant year for technology. This was the year that net neutrality died. We talked about that so much on this podcast. We devoted so much time and energy to it. It was a sad thing. I really hope it can be remedied. I have faith that it can, but damage has been done by the FCC in killing net neutrality. And 2017 was the year that that happened. It was the year that this long-held dream of making the internet non-competitive happened, really, right for lack of a better term. Non-competitive is funny. Uh, it's funny to say because the people who push it, who are pushing it say, well, this is all about competition. But I would argue that maybe that's not necessarily true because it's about buying your way out of true competition. So making the internet non-competitive and hurting us in so many ways, that happened in 2017. But other things happened too that was more positive. We talked about self-driving cars on the podcast. They moved a lot closer to reality. It's something I think can really transform everything because transportation is a huge issue that we have that's only going to become bigger and self-driving cars could be a solution to that. Uh, I've also talked on the podcast about how I'm a cord cutter and I support many, many people who have not done it yet. Cord cutting, getting rid of cable and getting all their filmed entertainment through the internet, this was the year that people started cutting the cord at drastically increasing rates. What else happened this year? Smart speakers reached critical mass, right? Things like the Amazon Echo, Google Home, Apple announced its new speaker, the HomePod. You like that name, the HomePod? I've heard mixed reviews, but that's what it's called. This was really the year that smart speakers became ubiquitous. So many people have them. They do so much for us. And locally, here in New England, a number of exciting tech companies announced they were relocating to or opening major operations in Rhode Island, which is something that I am very excited about as a Rhode Island resident. And in Boston, of course, the tech scene continued to boom as well. It's been very big, and it looks like it's only getting bigger. So the question is, now that 2017 is behind us, what can we expect the tech from the tech world in 2018? Well, that is something we will talk a lot more about on next week's show. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Listen, 2017 was the year that the New England Tech Podcast debuted. I have been fortunate to have gotten some really great listeners in that time and to hear some really great feedback. It is a lot of fun doing this show, and the reason it's a lot of fun is because the people who are listening to it out there appreciate it. I hope you guys appreciate it. You know, if you're listening, I would certainly think that you do, but I'm not making any assumptions. I'm going to continue to come here and try to give you the best news updates that you can get, the best features, the deep dives that we take 
into technology issues, a little bit of fun conversation. Maybe we'll do some interviews in 2018. I don't know. I don't know. I've actually heard some people say they like it better uh, without the interviews. There was one person who said that. Not some people. One person said that. I think you know who you are listening out there. <laughs> but we'll see where things take us. But 2817 was such a big year for technology. And it was such a big year for me personally. I really, really appreciate all of you out there listening. I hope you had a great holiday season once again. I wish you the best of luck. I wish you the happiest new year. I hope you have a great, great holiday. Don't get too drunk. Be responsible. Don't drink and drive, please. Don't text and drive. Don't do any of those terrible things that you can do on New Year's. Be responsible. But of course, don't forget to have fun. We will be back here next week with more news and commentary about the world of technology in 2018. My name is Steve Tushankel. This week, as every week, courage. We are-